0: Let us pray together. Father, I pray that my message and my speech might not be in mere plausible words of earthly wisdom, but in demonstration of your power and spirit that our faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Amen. 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 I'll do a little rearranging up here. this Bible. Here. It's a really big Bible too. So there's a great debate that's been going on for a long time time among Christians about the notion of free will. At the heart of the debate is one question. Does a person, before they are saved and unaided by God, have the capacity to choose to turn and trust Jesus for salvation? The force of the debate is a tension between two things. To be saved, we must each answer the question, who is Jesus? But also that salvation is completely a work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That passage from Galatians, where it starts talking about do, not doing this and not doing that and not doing that, make us all feel really terribly guilty about Ourselves because we don't have the capacity to not sin. On the one hand, the problem is that free will is a difficult concept biblically. In Scripture, it says in Galatians 5.1, as we just read, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. In Romans 5.8, it says God showed his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 8, 34 says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In 1 Timothy 1, 15, it says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, we read, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to Scripture. If we're free, why do we need to be set free? Why can't we just use our will and choose not to sin? Why can't we just choose to believe, choose to follow, choose to obey, and go along our merry way? Why is it that even as a believer we continue to struggle and turn away? If we could choose to be free, why don't we? The honest reality is that while we can choose not to sin, we cannot choose to not sin. Even as faithful believers, we need his mercies new every morning. I don't think I need to be telling that to a church called Grace Anglican Church. On the other hand, there is a choice to be made. A wise friend once said to me, freedom is not the same as having a lot of choices. Freedom is not the same as having a lot of choices. Freedom is not about choosing the right answer to an infinite number of questions by selecting from an array of infinite alternatives and answers. Freedom comes at the moment that we're confronted with the one question that's at the heart of Luke's gospel. Who is Jesus? And then like the centurion standing at the foot of the cross at his crucifixion, we find ourselves there with only one unescapable answer. Truly, this was the Son of God. For Christians, the question, who is Jesus, stands above all other questions, and the answer above all other answers. Choosing to answer the question, who is Jesus, is unlike any other choice. It's not like answering, what will I wear? Or a more difficult choice, like, who should I vote for? It's not like the choice between how to invest our money or our time. It's not like answering the weighty questions pressing on our culture today. All these questions require weighing what we know and are experienced against a sea of uncertain outcomes. Answering the question, who is Jesus, is only possible when Jesus reveals the truth about himself to us, when we find ourselves in the places of deepest need, when we find the deepest depths of our own sin and our necessity, which in the story this morning is ahead in Jerusalem, at the foot of the cross. That is the revelation that we call grace. In chapter 9, the question, Who is Jesus, is, is the central feature of the, of the chapter. And it reaches a climax, a turning point in the gospel. Up until chapter 9, everything Luke has recorded has been in service to one purpose that the audience, the recipient of this gospel, Theophilus, would be certain about the things he had been taught. That uh, That he'd be absolutely certain about the answer to this one central question. Luke's gospel has offered a clear and convincing set of evidence. From the annunciation by the angels at his birth, to the proclamation of John the Baptist, to the voice of God, his baptism to outsiders like a demon possessed man who cried jesus son of the most high god many have borne witness to who he is jesus has also offered proofs to authenticate who he is by demonstrating his authority over satan and unclean spirits by showing his power over physical infirmities and disease by displaying his power over the natural world, storms, by exhibiting even power to raise the dead. But in spite of all that he has taught about himself, all that he has proclaimed concerning himself, and all that he has revealed through these many proofs, those closest to him still fail to understand And at this point in the gospel, remain uncertain. Chapter 9 begins with Herod the Tetrarch. This is how it kind of gets set up for us. He's pondering the question, who is Jesus? And he's perplexed. Now Herod, uh, Herod the Great was his father. He was an Edomite, descended from Esau, an Arab, whose family had converted to Judaism. His mother was a Samaritan. His authority as king over the Jews living in Galilee was given to him by the Roman government. And it was an affront to the Jews who lived there because they regarded him as a half-breed, an appeaser, an accommodator of the Roman rule, the polytheistic mandates and the Hellenistic customs that they were opposed to. And he suppressed Any kind of an uprising among the Jews against the Romans. We know him most because of the opulent opulent feast that he served uh, up, that was including a platter with the head of John the Baptist. He was the one who killed John the Baptist. Herod had heard about Jesus because some had said that Jesus was John the Baptist raised, others said that he was Elijah. But Herod had no answer. In response to the question, he is simply perplexed. That's really not a problem for us because he's Herod, and we don't like him either. Herod, we know, is the head of the Herodians. And at this point, the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. They have been since the beginning of the gospel. It's easy for us to see why Herod would be on the outside, that he would be uncertain, because obviously he's evil, right? The problem for us in chapter 9 is not that Herod does not understand, but the people who are closest to him do not understand. His disciples, his followers. In chapter 9, we have In contrast the opulent feast of Herod, the feeding of the 5,000 in which Jesus serves up life. Taking five loaves and two fish, he divides them among 5,000 men and then also women and children. His disciples are with him the whole time. But they still can't see him for who he is. Broken into two parts, our gospel lesson this morning brings the question closer to us, where we find people increasingly like ourselves, still struggling with the answer. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In this verse, we learn that Jesus is heading toward the cross. He's about to be taken up. And now he's determined to go in that direction. Jesus and his disciples have come down from the mountain and his face is set toward Jerusalem and the cross. But the disciples don't understand. We know from John chapter 6 that with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus authenticates one of his great I am statements. You know, the I am statements that he makes are a way of, of grafting himself into the name of God which was Yahweh, or I am. It also says in, chapter, uh, in that chapter that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But having seen all that he's done and heard all that he's taught, this saying proves too hard for many of his closest followers, and they turn away never to follow him again. Also, just before passing this passage, the question who is Jesus comes up again when the disciples are at the base of Mount Hermon and Jesus puts the question directly to them, who do you say that I am? Peter as is his normal practice jumps up with a really bold bold answer, the Christ of God. It seems at this turning point, this crucial turning point in the gospel, that Peter has finally gotten it right. But after that proclamation, we know that Jesus tells the disciples that he must suffer and die and on the third day be raised. But we know from Matthew 16 that Peter cannot accept it. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, saying, This shall never happen. And how does Jesus reply? He says, Get behind me, Satan. It harkens back to the temptations of Satan in the wilderness, who offered Jesus the kingship, the authority over all the peoples of the earth, if he would only not go to the cross. There is no Christ without the cross. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, we read that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is the way to glory. The way of Christ is through Jerusalem. The way is through suffering. The way is through the cross. There is no Savior without the cross. It's not a problem of the will, but a problem of witness. Peter, chief among the disciples, will not fully understand until the cock crows three times. How will he answer? Or how will we answer until we, likewise, are standing at the foot of the cross? In verse 52, we read, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to take make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now with the feeding of the 5,000, people had wanted to take Jesus and make him king by force. With this change in direction, this focus on Jerusalem and what's ahead, it's probably, uh, it could be that Perhaps his popularity is beginning to wane somewhat, but I think probably not. His rejection in the Samaritan village could simply be the product of the enmity that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus is a Jewish leader. And now his face is set toward Jerusalem. You remember from the story of the woman of the well that the Samaritans, they worshipped on a mountain... And the Jews, they worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. And there was a conflict between them over this very thing. Perhaps their refusal to receive Jesus had something to do with his turning to Jerusalem. They saw this as some kind of a rebuke or a condemnation. What's more prominent in verses 52 to 56... And more to the point of the question, who is Jesus, is the response of his disciples, James and John, to this rejection of Jesus. In verse 54, we read that when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, we expected Herod to be perplexed. But this is James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples who so enthusiastically miss the mark again and again. You might remember that right after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain to pray. And as they're praying, he's transfigured. His face is changed. His clothes become dazzling white. And a cloud descends on Jesus and, and uh, who's speaking at that time with Moses and Elijah about what's ahead, about the cross and about His sacrifice. And the voice of the Lord speaks to them and says, "This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him." And then we see later. in chapter nine, verse 43 and 45, Jesus told the disciples about the suffering that was ahead. And how did Jesus how did uh, James and John respond? In verses 46 through 8, they respond by arguing over who is going to be the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest? I mean, it, it's bewildering, isn't it? Should we call down fire and destroy these people? Um, who's going to be the greatest? It's so inconsistent with what we know of Jesus and the gospel. Later again in 43 to 45, or actually, I'm sorry, um, In 49 to 50, John comes to Jesus complaining that people are casting out demons in his name and tries to stop them. It suggests to me that they're worried that somehow they might lose something of their own authority that is to come. Now James and John are wanting to call down fire from heaven. Statement seems to suggest that they are still unsure about the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Like Herod's perplexity about whether Jesus could be Elijah, in 2 Kings verses 1-10, to when King Azahiah sent one of his captains to Elijah demanding that he come to him, Elijah did in fact call down fire and destroyed the captain and his men. James and John must have wondered if Jesus is Elijah or if Jesus is like Elijah, this is what he'll do. It is almost as if they have concluded that Jesus is not the Savior, not the savior that he is, but that He's Elijah back from the dead. They had the same question: who is Jesus? but the answer remains beyond their gap, uh, beyond their grasp, just like Herod. There's no good people, bad people. There's just people. And our will to be able to understand and choose and decide to follow Jesus remains inadequate. I would interject that we should not look at the seeming in, in, ineptitude of James and John as if somehow it's foreign to us. For us to receive the full benefit of this passage this morning, We should be grateful that these disciples are so accessible to us, so imperfect in their understanding. We don't need examples of people who could. We need examples of people like us, people who are unsure, doubtful, uncertain at times. How do we, how could we, like these disciples, have any hope of knowing the Savior? before we get to Jerusalem. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul writes, For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. How can we preach Christ crucified without the crucifixion? In verses 57 to 62, we're given three more examples that resonate with the real life that we live and amplify this point. In verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The implication of this first example is that the person wants to follow Jesus somewhere, but not to Jerusalem, not to the cross. Foxes have homes. They have the security of their burrows, They have the companionship of family. Birds similarly have homes, nests where they lay eggs and they dig worms for their chicks. How do they compare to humans? It's a normal human expectation to have a home, a shelter, food, warmth, family, and comfort. Jesus is not the rising star in Jerusalem that they hope for. He will not ascend to the throne as king of the Jews in place, in a palace in Jerusalem. The path to Jerusalem is not a path to fame and fortune, but a a path to rejection and suffering and death. To know the answer to the question, who is Jesus, we must know where he is going. Previously in Luke chapter 9, Jesus threw down the gauntlet. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit if a man gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Grace is a free gift, but we must be clear that it's not a promise of prosperity, it's not a promise of simplicity. Um, it's not a promise of comfort. It's a promise of heaven. It's a promise of his love for us and salvation. In verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is a really interesting response to what he said. You know, it it might be right to assume that the man's father has died. But what we don't see on the surface is that it's really kind of a Middle Eastern custom to make this kind of an expression. That, That what he's really expressing is his obligation to his father. That he needs to go back home and he needs to be faithful in service to his father until his father has died and then he'll be free to come. I think we see that a bit in Jesus' response. Let the dead bury their own dead. He's not talking about their physical death. I mean, how could a physically dead person bury a physically dead person? He's talking about people that are spiritually dead. And it has everything to do with the response that Jesus says. Go. And proclaim the kingdom of God. It's not that Jesus has no compassion for these people. In fact, he tells this man that would follow him to the cross that he needs to go and and share with them this message that the kingdom has come, which is life, that they might know. It seems to support Jesus' response let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What should we make of this? The, the way is forward. The way is to the cross, and the cross makes all the difference. In Jerusalem, Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God by way of suffering and the cross. This is the message that we are to proclaim To answer the question, who is Jesus, means knowing that the question is a matter of life and death. Without Christ, we are dead, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2. In Jerusalem, through the cross, we obtain life by his death. In verse 61, we have yet another and a final response to Jesus. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts (coughs) his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. For this last comparison um, to Elijah, Jesus again builds on what seems a growing understanding of who he is and what is ahead that seems to be getting a little closer but still falling short. Another said... I will follow you, but let me first say well, say farewell to my folks at home. Give me some time to go back and get things in order. Let me have some time to go back and say a proper goodbye. It alludes to the, to the passage that we, we heard this morning from 1 Kings chapter 19, where God instructs uh, Elijah to go, <coughs> return on his way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when he arrives, Elijah, he shall anoint to be the prophet in his place. Elijah's tenure as the prophet of God is coming to an end and God has named Elisha as his successor and Elijah does as God tells him and he finds Elisha plowing and he casts his cloak on him and Elijah ran after Elijah and said let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you just like we see here. Elijah responds to this request go back for what have I done to you. And Elisha returned to his people with his oxen. and He sacrificed them and they ate and ate with his people and then, they re- and then returned to follow Elijah. The expectation here is if Jesus is Elijah, this is what Jesus is going to certainly let him go back and, and say his goodbyes and then follow. Here in Luke, the comparison between Jesus and Elijah remains. It's not the faithless response, but one that assumes that Jesus is just going to do what Elijah did. But Jesus is not Elijah. You know, a lot of times people ask you a question, well, you know, who is Jesus? And people will say, well, he's a great leader, he's a great teacher, he was a prophet. Not that he was Lord. The important point here is now Jesus says, The person who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And the implication is, the time is now. What we should be drawn from this is the cross is now. When is the day of decision about who Jesus is? It's coming up. It's right now. There's no time to waste. Jesus is not Elijah. There's not the time that's going to pass between Elijah and Jesus yet to pass. There's no more time. Let me conclude this way. I suspect that this side of heaven, it will always remain a mystery to me how it was that when I was in a sophomore in college with a pronounced indifference to God, that on one particular day, the question, who is Jesus, came to me right at the same moment of great necessity where I felt deep sense of my need for him and conviction of sin and had Jesus right there in front of me as the absolute only answer. How do we explain that kind of thing? We explain it by virtue of God's grace and the, God, the way God works with such precision and in such time as to reveal Himself to us when we need Him the most. I don't think the thing that is lacking in us is a weakness of the will. We just have wills, <laughs> we make choices. I think what is often lacking in us is the necessity. The real, deep sense of our own sin for which a price must be paid. Or a deep sense of the fact that whatever the difficult circumstances in our life are, that there is a Savior. That that Savior can and wants To save us. You know, whenever we get into problems, whenever we have struggles at work, whenever we have uncertainties about our own health and things like that, we're like the person putting their hand to the plow and saying, let me go back. You know, we all have, have, it's it's like the the children of Israel uh, or Abraham even when he's been given the promised land and a drought comes along and the first thing that he thinks about is Egypt is much better than the land that God has promised me. Let me go down there. Or the people of Israel, as they've been delivered out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt, they they get on the other side. They're hungry, they're thirsty, and they say, wouldn't it have been better if we had just stayed back there, where we had, at least we had food and water. We were slaves, but we had food and water. The orientation of our life is not backwards. There's no going backwards. For the church. We don't have recessionals in the church. We only have processionals. We only go forward. I say this because the thing that, that oftentimes is a challenge for us is we too want a savior without the cross. We want to know the right answer to difficult questions. But but it's very hard for us to come close to the cross. About all we can do. I mean, I can't tell you. This is, this is the step you have to take now because this is the thing that's going to make the difference. About the only thing that I can tell you to do is to pray. If Jesus is not present in your life, if he's not present in the difficult situation of your life, um, you need to pray that he would reveal himself to you in that moment, that he would demonstrate to you the depth of your necessity and the power of his sufficiency. Amen.